This is Health Matters with Sipla. For almost two years now, everyone's been talking about the new normal with the global COVID-19 pandemic. But what happens when we return to the old normal, which is already starting to happen in some ways? Our mental health expert, Jeannie Covey, is back to help us navigate this. Jeannie is a clinical psychologist who works with individuals, couples, families, groups, children and adolescents. Jeannie, welcome back. Thank you so much, Ryan. Always so much fun to be here. Now, let's look at life after lockdown, the scenario which we're pretty much already experiencing right now. Uh, There might be a move to go back to the office after you've become comfortable with and probably used to working from home. How do we adapt to life back in the old routine? Such a beautiful and interesting question. And I always find a lot of comfort in knowing that human beings are highly, highly adaptable animals. We are actually the most successful species on the planet. Um, we And we know this from how we've dominated other species and dominated the planet. We can think of that in some ways as success uh, as a species. We're, we've, we're overpopulated. Um, so we've really succeeded as a species. And why is that? Is because we're highly adaptable. If we look at people, there is such a huge variance in where people live, the different climates that people can live in. There's huge variance in the different diets that people can consume. There's huge variance in the kinds of um, social structures that people can have. So human beings are highly, highly, highly adaptable creatures. And had you asked us two years and maybe three or four months ago um, how we would adapt to a global pandemic, we would have said, oh my gosh, we never could do that. We wouldn't be able to survive. How are we going to, how are we going to cope? How are we going to do that? And so we have this illusion that <clears throat> we need to be able to predict the environments in order to be able to adapt and cope. So now we're back to a situation where we are now conscious of not being able to predict something. Whereas two and a half years ago, we weren't conscious of not being able to predict the future. Now we are simply conscious of it, thinking to ourselves, how am I going to adapt? How is it going to be? What is it going to be like? And so we have this illusion of not being able to cope with the upcoming changes as we start to move through COVID-19. So I think that human beings will adapt as we get more and more information on the table of what that looks like. But trying to plan and prepare for that now fully is like trying to eat a meal before you get to the restaurant. <laughs> it creates a whole bunch of illusion of anxiety and illusion of not being in control. But we simply do not have enough information to know how we're going to adapt. But I always say, just because you can't predict it doesn't mean you can't survive it. Most of the things that we worry about will never happen anyway. And the things that we should worry about, we can't predict But just because we can't predict it doesn't mean that we won't be able to triumph, survive, cope, flourish, succeed, and thrive. We just have to wait until we have enough information on the table to be able to know what our next move is, but that we are highly adaptable and we will get through. Now, Jeannie, what about this renewed pressure to socialize? Everyone is having these social gatherings in real life. Can you believe it? We're no longer meeting as communities online. People want to actually see us face to face. You know, we can't blame bad connections for not being at meetings or for stepping away to go and do something else. We've actually got to go and see people. We've, uh, you know, uh, some people that were relieved, obviously, that they, you know, they, they, they just wanted to uh, probably stay in and, and come up with an excuse. And, and others, you know, are kind of also battling to, to come to terms with how to get out and socialize again. Yeah. So I think that there is a lot of anticipation and even a lot of um, anxiety around that. And I think it's, there's two ways of, of looking at it. The one way is that people have gotten to know themselves a lot better with the slowing down that COVID brought into, onto the scene. 
that I got to know myself a lot better and I got to know that I actually have a much more limited capacity for engagement than I thought I did. And I was actually on this hectic path of burnout by socializing all the time. That's one way it could be applicable to some people that they've gotten to know themselves better and know that they don't actually have such a huge capacity for socializing and that they do have a need for um, for solitary time. They do have a need for um, sensory deprivation. They do have a need for lower stimulation. That's for some people. But for other people, there can also be an addiction to isolation. And that's because isolation and anxiety go hand in hand. When we become isolated, we don't get enough information from the system in order to be able to reality test. And when we can't reality test effectively, our perceptions about the world around us and we start to perceive the world as more and more hostile than it may actually be. When that happens, we start to become anxious. And when we become anxious, we isolate ourselves. As we saw with COVID, I don't want to get sick, so I'm going to protect myself by isolation. And in this way, isolation can become quite addictive because the more you isolate, the more anxious you become. And the more anxious you become, the more you isolate. So it's very important to know for yourself whether it's the first scenario. Actually, I'm more aware of my own true needs now. Sure. And I'm actually more introverted, which is not that I don't like people and don't like socializing. Yeah. It's more that actually my battery gets very drained when I socialize, whereas an extrovert has more like a dynamo that gets charged when they socialize, which is very different to, to an introvert. Is it that situation or is it that actually you've developed this addiction to isolation and you're actually incredibly anxious about engaging with people because of a fear of judgment, rejection, or other people's hostility? So I think it's very important to know for yourself which one of those it is. And if it's the first one, then to really work with setting more effective boundaries, not overcommitting, over um, um, scheduling yourself and really managing the input to your central nervous system so that you don't become overstimulated again, don't burn out. And if it's the second one is to really work with regulating your central nervous system again, to work through the anxiety long enough to be able to engage with one or two known people to start to break off what we, we say in show jumping is ring rust. When you haven't competed for a while, we say you're ring rusty. Um, and to break off that ring rust and start getting those juices flowing again, and break down that, that anxiety that comes with isolation. Jenny, from a health perspective, people might still be concerned for their safety, even though everything's open up. Have the last years seen a rise in OCD or germophobia as such? Yes. Uh, and that's number one. And number two, how will people adjust to these fewer restrictions if they're forced back into this real life? So I don't think that there's been a rise in germophobia or OCD. I think, in fact, in my clinical experience, that people who pre-COVID had germophobia and OCD actually coped a lot better because they were like, I've actually been preparing for this my whole life. Yeah. So it didn't increase their OCD or their germophobia. They've always been like that. And they actually coped with it actually much better than people who had this lovely, soft, warm, blank denial wrapped around them that actually, oh, you know, our immune systems are so strong and we, you know, we're able to cope with whatever comes our way and there won't be a, a pandemic. It was, it didn't even feature in our thoughts. So I don't think there's been an increase in germophobia or OCD. But I think that there, there is this um, illusion that the world is much less safer than it ever used to be because of this illusion that we are no longer able to predict. But actually, the world is just as unsafe as it's always been. I don't know if that makes anybody feel better or worse, <laughs> but the world is just as unsafe as it's always been. But yet we managed to have a life yeah. and we managed to do things. So recently, a client of mine moved with her family to the UK and um, her two primary school age daughters have been incredibly anxious because there are no electric fences, no barbed wire, no security gates where they are. 
And they're like, but how are we going to protect ourselves? Yeah. But the truth is that there isn't a threat there that they need to protect themselves from in the same way that there's a threat of violent crime. Yeah. So when we start to reduce the, the restrictions, people can have an illusion that they are actually more um, at risk, um, that they are they're more vulnerable, just like these two young girls going to the UK and seeing that there's no electric fences, no no security, no security guards, nothing like that. But the reason why the restrictions will be reduced is because of the reduced threats. So accepting that the reduced restrictions are because of the reduced threat and knowing, like we, we said earlier, that you know, life actually cannot be predicted, but that's okay. We don't have to be able to predict it in order to keep ourselves safe. Yeah. We can adjust and we can accommodate as we, as we go along. So I think that it will be quite anxiety provoking for some, for a lot of people when people are not wearing masks. Um, when people are, um, you know, socializing, it'll really trigger our anxiety. But a large part of that could be this illusion that when there are fewer restrictions, we are more at risk. But fewer restrictions are also actually a reflection of a lower threat. Jeannie, there's, of course, still financial stresses for many people whose livelihoods were affected by the lockdown. And for many of them, nothing is back to normal. Any tips for those still dealing with money struggles? Okay, so I, I became a psychologist because I'm very bad with numbers. <laughs> so I'm definitely not a financial advisor at all. But I listened to a very interesting interview with a financial advisor quite a while ago who was talking about anxiety and investments. And it was such an interesting spin because he combined emotion with finance uh, from the points of departure of looking at the central nervous system in terms of understanding neuroscience. Now, financial stress is incredibly, incredibly triggering kind of stress because it's stress, it's threat to survival. So for us in our modern day, money equals survival. And if we don't have money, we won't be able to survive. But what happens when we become anxious is it triggers our fight or flight response. And when our fight or flight response gets triggered, that response lives in a different part of our brain called the reptilian formation which is a part of our brain that we share with reptiles, doesn't have thought, doesn't have logic, doesn't have reason, just stimulus response for survival. Mm. Whereas our cortex, which is the newest part of our brain that, that only developed much, much more recently, I'm talking millions of years ago instead of hundreds of millions of years ago, it is our, what we call our neocortex, the new part of our brain, and that's the part of our brain that makes us human. That's the part of our brain in which we have dreams, in which we have an identity, in which we have our sense of self, in which we have our concept of relationships, in which we have our social constructs. It's also the part of our brain in which we make smart decisions. So when we become very anxious, we actually make poorer quality decisions because we are firing from a part of our brain that doesn't have logic. So when a person is sitting with financial stress, they can actually make poorer financial decisions because they are firing from a place of fear and anxiety and survival rather than from their cortex, which is programmed to make smart decisions and have good judgments and be able to effectively problem solve. Because financial stress is actually just a problem at the end of the day. It's a problem that can be solved if a person has got the resources both in their environment, but also within their own central nervous system to be able to do that. So when dealing with financial stress, it's very important to have a regulated central nervous system. And that is essentially going to help you keep firing from your cortex and make smart decisions to solve this particular problem. And I obviously don't have any idea of what those solutions look like because I'm not a financial advisor. Sure. But, and all situations vary, all contexts vary. 
but being able to problem solve. And I always say psychologists don't help people with their problem. They help people with their problem solving. Got you. So in order to help a person with their problem solving, it's important that they stay in their cortex. So that's doing things like, you know, as, as trivial as it sounds, meditation, mindfulness. Um, even there's a lot of research that shows that practicing gratitude um, helps a person get out of their sympathetic nervous system and into their parasympathetic nervous system um, and helping that person stay in their cortex, listening to bilateral stimulation music, um, looking at your um, amounts of stimulants and reducing the amounts of stimulants that you're taking into your central nervous system, having good quality interactions, meaningful interactions to have that co-regulation and doing all of the things that help your brain stay in good problem-solving mode so that you can resolve these financial problems and no longer have that threat to survival. Jeannie, once again, time flies when you're uh, in so, uh, you know, enthralled and uh, engrossed in, in the amazing uh, content that you, you keep sharing with us. Thanks again for some quality insight into uh, our mental health and uh, how we're coping uh, other side and still, uh, I guess, uh, going through uh, a global pandemic. Lovely to chat with you and lovely to have you on the podcast once again. Thank you so much, Ryan. Hopefully see you again soon. Can't wait. Jeannie Covey, thanks so much, everybody, for listening to Health Matters. I'm Ryan O'Connor in partnership with Sipla. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please remember to rate and review the show and we'll be back soon with another brand new episode. Health Matters in association with Sipla. Check your favorite podcast app for the latest episode.